Hello and welcome to this Matthew Clark Interviews podcast, where we sit down with the industry's key figures. Today we're talking to Joe Fatterini, IWC Personality of the Year and IWSC Wine Communicator of the Year, wine expert, writer and one of the stars of The Wine Show. Joe actually has a previous life working for Matthew Clark. Thank you for being here today, Joe. It's a pleasure. Good, it's good to hear. Um, first thing I want to ask, could you give us, my listeners, an overview of your career so far? My career so far um, it is random and it sort of ping-pongs around. I have been, most of my career have been either talking about wine or selling it. So I, I started as a, as a young wine merchant and um, I worked in shops in Epping in Essex. If there are any Essex boys out there, what? And uh, so I was a, a store manager, but then I became a university academic and moved much more into communication. So I wrote a textbook, which is still floating around by the amazingly tedious title of Managing Wine and Wine Sales. And it is still to this day, I think, about the only textbook on how to sell wine in hotels and restaurants. Um, it's horrendously out of date. Don't buy a copy. There are still some around. Um, and it's sold very heavily in Hong Kong for some weird reason. Right. So which shop do we go to to get our hands on? I think there are remaindered copies available through Amazon. Second hand. Second hand copies. Now, I was a wine journalist for a long time, for about 14, 15 years. I wrote for the Herald newspaper in Scotland. I lived in Glasgow, mostly writing about wine and broadcasting a little bit. But then I came back into the trade and I joined Matthew Clark in Scotland and was a regular account manager, not selling a lot of wine, which is a very useful skill. I think if you become a wine merchant, it's, or if you, you are a wine merchant, it's very useful to have sold non-wine stuff because, particularly in Scotland, it, we got to learn a lot about what outlets really needed. It wasn't about, I've got an amazing wine. It was much more a case of, what do your customers really want to go for? And you can imagine in the west of Scotland, people tell you in unvarnished terms what they want. But we, you know, we reinvented some pubs and restaurants in terms of their wine sales. I moved across, uh, I worked for the PGA Tour in the United States for a bit. I returned as a wine merchant, but now I'm a TV presenter and I spend a lot of time on telly. Yeah, so talking about the wine show, how did you get involved in, in the wine show? Because it's been an enormous success so far. It has. Um, in fact, somebody just emailed me this morning from Hong Kong, where we're on in two different channels in Hong Kong, and she's a big fan of the show. Yeah, we're in 110 countries, and even we were never totally certain that we would go out to that many countries. Um, I had made some television programmes about 20 years ago. I started on radio more than... 30 years ago, I think I was 15, we had a pirate radio station. So I'd always enjoyed talking and broadcasting. Um, but about uh, 20 years ago or so, I made some TV shows, I did some little bits, and then I walked away from it to go and work with Matthew Clark, funnily enough. And there was a video on YouTube that sat there, nobody watched it for years, and a producer was looking for somebody to come and um, present this show, and she found it on YouTube. It's still there, it's me tasting wine in a bath in Argentina if you want to look it up it's slightly it's, it's not rude um, and she said if you could taste wine well when you clearly had had a drink and you're in a bath in a mountain lodge in Argentina a bath of wine she said you, you'll be very good so I just made a little pilot and then it sort of spun out from there we just made our second series right so what have been your favourite moments then filming the show um, in general the really nice part about it is you get to meet really lovely folk. People say, oh, you must try amazing wines. We do try some really nice wines. But, you know, I remember trying, it was a 1791 Van de Constance 
1791, for I'm sure you all will immediately remember, was the year that Mozart died. Um, it was a wine we know that that vintage of that wine, um, Napoleon enjoyed it when he was locked away on St. Helena. And, you know, it was one of those sort of iconic wines. Actually, what I really remember about the day, I mean, I remember the wine very well, it's very nice, but it was picking at half past three, four o'clock in the morning with these pickers who were all wearing little head torches, all singing in Afrikaans. And, you know, the whole thing was utterly beautiful. And that's what you really remember, is those sort of moments of, of doing fun stuff. We've explored new countries, and when I suspect over the next few years if for no other reason than Europe is Europe's had a hard vintage this last year it's, it's, um, you know, it's been tough for people, I meet winemakers all the time, so we will start drinking more things from Slovenia, Slovakia, Croatia Bosnia, which we went to in this series, uh, Georgia which is a sort of big producing country Hungary, which I haven't been to yet but we'd like to go to, so you do sometimes because we look for weird stories we're sometimes seeing you know, where things will come from in the future um, and that's been really inter- interesting. China, I'm trying some Chinese wine after this, and you know, China already, I think, the world's sixth largest wine producer, something like this, around Argentine size, that sort of order. Uh, mostly will be enjoyed by Chinese people, but they will be making extraordinary wines. And so, you know, our film in China, we didn't go to the wine producing regions, we talked to a lot of Chinese drinkers in that one and talking about the Chinese palate. Um, which is very different in many ways from, from the Western palette. But that's utterly fascinating. So it's really meeting interesting folk. Mm. So besides um, the, all of those different new countries, what else can we expect for Series 2? <laughs> series 2, uh, me being put through the most horrendous um, experiences. I, there's one bit, I run a marathon, the wine marathon in Bordeaux, Marathon de Medoc, which is great fun to run. Now, I am not an unfit person. I've done three Ironman races. So a marathon, I thought, oh, this will be easy. And I ended up in a hospital tent fitting and passing out and having surgeons running around jabbing me with bags of saline, thinking I was going to die. When it really works, and actually there is a lesson here... I don't, think, I don't want to sort of say to people, oh, you know, the wine show knows all the answers, but there is a lesson in the wine show, and, and it's really where we got it right, where I think sometimes there have been really good wine shows in the past, and, and we do stand on the shoulders of some giants. I mean, people won't remember, but a long time ago, Hugh Johnson, great wine writer, had a show called The Story of Wine, which was extraordinarily successful, but that was 30-odd years ago. Um, Jancis Robinson made a show called Vintner's Tales, which was another one which was very successful. Food and Drink was very good. James May and Oz Clark's little sort of adventures were, were, were great shows. But what... There have been a whole series of things where people never really got things to work in between. What people forget, you've just got to make a really good TV show and it happens to be about wine. And I think in hospitality, you've just got to have a really amazing hospitality experience and it happens to contain wine. There's a, an old ad man who people have forgotten now. It's a guy called uh, Howard Luck Gossage. Um, famously, he was um, he was the man who came up with the name Friends of the Earth. Weirdly obscure fact. He saved the Grand Canyon from being damned. But he he had a great line. He said, and, um, "People will read what interests them. Sometimes it's an advertisement, and it's very true. People will sort of do things that interest them. Sometimes it's going out and drinking a bottle of wine. But when we think about wine, particularly, and, and we had this, you know." We, we weren't competing against other wine media. We were competing against, I don't know, I'm a celebrity. So we had to be more entertaining. And I think when it comes to wine, we can get too hung up on the idea that everybody's already ready to drink wine. They're often not. We've got to stop them playing on PlayStations, watching Netflix. You know, it's got to be a more interesting experience than all these things. So 
when you just started getting involved in, in, in the show, then, there must have been like conversations about how to talk about wine and how to really pitch certain wine concepts to, to an audience. How did that go? Yeah, there, always, there were a lot of conversations. We had certain rules. I mean, one is you'll never see me spit on camera the whole way through. Not because I'm a really hard boozer, but it's more to do with spitting is a really tradey thing to go and do. And most people don't spit wine ever. So why spit on the camera? The problem is, of course, when we film it, it's all slightly out of sequence. And so when we do the tasting sequences, it looks like we only do it once a day. We actually do like eight of them in a day. And by the end of it, when you've filmed everything two or three times, so you've sort of done actually done about 20 tasting sequences and you're drinking all the way through, we have to go and have a lie down and cups of coffee at lunchtime. And number one point, putting Matthew Good's head in a freezer to try and sort of sober him up. Um, so, you know, we have those bits. There are certain bits. We... Um, you'll notice we talk less about what things taste of and more about how they feel, the textures around them. And it's partly because that's always the way I've talked about wine. But there is now some really interesting research about it. Most people aren't that fussed about the specific flavours of things. Very few people say, I like blackberry wines, but I don't really like strawberryish ones. What they'll tend to say is, I like really full-bodied, grippy, muscular wines... I don't like supple, soft, you know, medium-bodied reds. So if you describe textures, it's more meaning for people on the whole than describing flavours. But often when you look at the way that we describe wine in the wine business, we often start off by saying, well, it tastes of X, Y, and Z. Um, and also we kind of know the way people process flavour aromas means that what I taste and what you taste can be quite different. They're processed, you know, processing with different backgrounds and influences. The phrase I believe is multimodal. Taste is very multimodal. So it's not just about, I mean, mostly it almost all happens in your nose, and it's not just about detecting aromatic compounds. It interacts with lots of things like memory and mood and so on. So it's more about the experience yeah. of drinking and enjoying yeah. the wine as opposed to actual individual flavours. It, it is very much, you know, there's that notion that it, wine tasting is. For a dreadful word, is holistic. It sort of encompasses lots of different bits. Um, but textures really matter to people. And one of the things I often find with textures is that textures mean more to people at emotional level. We forget most people, most of the time, buy most things emotionally. You know, if we didn't do that, we would go and buy all our clothes in Oxfam because they keep us warm. But we don't because emotionally I want to go and be a TM Lewin shirt wearer, not whatever was available in Oxfam when I walked in there. And there's, I see myself as Mr. TM Lewin. Uh, the way, one way you sort of give wine emotion is to talk about textures, because texture words usually describe people as well. So if I sort of said to you, you know, Sante Steff is a good example. Sante Steffs are angular, full-bodied, um, austere, quite muscular keenly structured you can describe a person with all of those you know it's some elderly city boy in a suit that's awfully well cut for him and all that kind of stuff whereas if we go to you know particularly vintage I don't know something like 2003 or something from Burgundy where you know the wines were voluptuous and supple and they did have a certain amount of you know, fairly sort of structural but you know the, you start moving into much more sensual kind of terms and it's a you know a person wearing a silk dressing gown sort of floating around the house in an evening sitting on a chaise lounge that's made of velvet. You're describing a very different set of kind of mental cues. Um, 
and that's what really engages with people. They don't tend to buy wine logically. We're, we're not homo economicus when we buy wine. We're, we're much more homo sapiens, actually. Mm. So besides talking about texture, what, in, in your opinion, are the keys to good wine communication? I'll give you a, there's a really lovely little, this is a kind of shortcut, and I use lots of different shortcuts. There's a really nice one, and it's from the world of, of advertising, particularly car advertising, uh, and it's known as the, the KFC. It's nothing to do with fried chicken, but it does help you remember fried chicken. Car ads uh, and ads in general often tick off three things. They will start telling you something you need to know about a product, they will make you feel something, so no feel, and they get you to commit to doing something with it. And in a car advertisement, the sort of classic model will be something like, um, our car has the, you know, the, the Renault Bingo has the highest NCAP safety rating of any car in its class. You've got a logical reason to buy it. Nobody ever bought a car, though, because it had the highest NCAP safety rating. What they buy it is the next one, which is the feel, which is to say, will say something like, um, it'll have a nice picture of a little baby in a car seat. You know, the classic one, deer jumps out, the car swerves around. So you know that your precious load gets home on time perfectly safely. That's a really emotional sort of engagement. You then jump into, book a test drive today, go and do this with it. We often don't ask people to do a thing when we tell it. When we're talking about wine, often I will say something along the lines of, you know, it might well be this wine, I did a really good example. I tried some wines from Piemonte the other day. They're all grown on sandy soils. This wine is grown on sandy soils in a particular part of Alba in northern Italy. This is Barolos. That gives them a softer, more aromatic, gentler edge, making them much more versatile to go and match with foods. And they're a gentler introduction to Barolo as a style of wine. You should have it with whatever it's going to be, you know, slow-cooked rabbit stew or something, something terribly earthy and, you know, Piemonte, Piemontese, or white truffle pasta. And so there, you, you sort of give them a logical reason. It's grown on sandy soils, and people do still quite want that sense. I'm not advocating that we don't tell people stuff about wine. We like to know stuff about wine. Um, but you make it sort of relevant. It, sandy soils, on the whole, tend to make for softer, more aromatic, so, you know, whereas if you have them on these, you know, sort of much more gritty sort of... Uh, limey soils, then you'll end up having much more tannin and they're more reserved and more difficult sort of wines to get into. Um, so then you sort of say, go and do this with it. So often when I write tasting notes, even if it's Rioja, you know, soft strawberry, vanilla, you know, scented uh, wine, and then you might sort of bung something in. It's beautifully supple, very soft and easy drinking. And you know, when it is, that's what Rioja is one of those reasons wines you can say, lots of, you know, it's really broadly delicious style that lots of people love you should have it with our such and such you know um, you know sort of lamb cutlets or something um, and if you give those three so you sort of tick your way through I'm, I'm, am I telling them something that's logical am I making them feel quite nice about it and the feel sometimes can even be things like you know it's made from a beautiful little family winery and we know the producer and people love that connection because they then think well this producer is not going to go and sell something bad because they know these people so there's a real bond of trust. It's not that they just bought it, they're kind of friends. Um, and what you do with it can be what you eat with it, have a party with it, you know, um, it's sort of great wine to have for celebration with friends. Because actually an awful lot of wines are not necessarily for eating with. You know. mm -hmm. So for people then that are on the floor selling wines to consumers, guests of, of restaurants, etc., would you have some tips for them on how to really appear to be a wine expert? 
selling those wines? Yes, I'll give you two tips. There's two really good ones. Number one, and I'm not giving you a hard time, I never use the word consumers. Because me, my mental image of consumer is a sort of cardboard cutout and it says, you know, sort of ABC1, you know, AB professional woman aged 28 to 35 shops at Zara, you know, it's that kind of thing. Um, whereas if the nicest way, and I think certainly if you are in a service environment, it's, it's the audience. And if you start to think about the people you sell to as an audience, it naturally creates a sort of sense of, I have to put a bit of a show on about this. Uh, there's a famous book written years ago called The Marketing of the Meal Experience. And the, the, this guy, it was very influential at the time. This was written in the 50s, so before even my time. Um, but it described about how in the past people in restaurants, they all looked the same and you decided where you went on the basis of the food, whether it's good, bad or indifferent. Indian restaurants and Italian restaurants changed that dramatically in the UK, where people went not just for the food, but they went for something that was integrated. So Italian restaurants would have check tablecloths and a Chianti flask, you know, with the sort of fiasco with the wicker on it. And the guy would sort of say, oh, signorina, and they would do all that flowery stuff, and they'd give you a limoncello at the end. The whole thing was an experience, and they were much more theatrical in that sense. Um, and Indian restaurants were kind of the same. All the staff would come from the subcontinent, you know. So you would immerse into this Disney World experience. So if you think about, this is the audience I'm talking to, and I have to perform, then all you really need to do is learn your lines. And when we think about being a wine expert, you don't need to learn anything. You know, if you're performing Hamlet, you don't have to know the lines for Twelfth Night. You just have to know Hamlet. And in this context, Hamlet in this context is your current wine list. You only need to know about the wines in there. You don't need to know everything about them. You need to know, really, is there something I can tell you a fact about it? You know, it's made in here, or this guy produces, or these three sisters produce it. Um, something that you can sort of make people feel nice about it, often it's things like, I really loved this when I tried it last week. You know, from this is or somebody I know really enjoyed it when they had it with that food, or this is something that we always sell when there are large parties coming in on Friday night. And then the final one is what are they going to do with it? It goes with A, B, C, D. You know, it's very versatile. It's pretty focused. Um, so if you know your lines, then that's easy, and you perform to that little audience. Um, there is another little trick. So you know, I walk in there, I serve this stuff. I'm performing to the audience, I feel brave, I pull my trousers up, you know, polish my nails. And then all the service bit, that's all part of your performance and you just polish your performance. And the wines you start, let's start with three, then no 10, then no 20, however many wines you've got on your list. You don't need to know everything straight away. Um, but the other one is a lovely little trick. This is a really useful one, the Blick. Um, the, the Blick stands for balance, length, intensity and complexity. And it's used by wine judges to determine whether a wine is good, bad or indifferent. Even if you don't like it, you can still judge whether it's balanced, long, intense, complex. So balance is that balance between fruit and acidity in wines. Uh, length is how long it lasts in your palate. Intensity is how very accurately you can define it. Red fruit is not very intense. Strawberries is kind of intense. Alpine strawberries is very intense. So how narrowly can you sort of hone it down? And then complexity is how many things can you taste? It's more, can, do you, are you aware there's a lot of things or not? But those four words are real wine expert words. So if you're wanting to have an aura of expertise, rather than saying it tastes of ABC, it's beautifully balanced. This is a the reason this wine is nice is really balanced, it's got great length, it sits on the palate for a long time. That sounds quite smart, really. 
or somebody comes along and they say, now then why do you like that? Well, it's very intense fruit flavours. I mean, you may get different from me. I often get quite an intense flavour of cranberry about this. But I tell you, it's not just about cranberry, it's very complex. There's all sorts of interesting other aromas that fit in. Notice I'm not actually telling what those aromas are, I'm simply telling you that there's lots of other different aromas, which makes me sound like I'm a real expert. Now you're all going to watch the wine show and notice the number of times and I'm totally flummoxed. And I go, well, it's beautifully balanced. It's a great length, isn't it, Matthew? And they go, oh yeah, you know, you're such an expert, Joe. And I say, well, it's very intense wine. It's not, very t- not that it's big, it's that it's focused. And all that complexity on the finish. And you suddenly realise all I've done is just sort of tick off. I have other words because, uh, you know, I use poised instead of balanced and use persistence instead of length, you know. <laughs> and we have all sorts of different words uh, that's, that go and uh, throw in. I just sit with thesaurus. Right. That's all I do at night. I don't read wine books. I just do that. Well, that's very good. You've given away all of your tricks now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't worry. The check's in the post, I'm sure. <laughs> right, so you mentioned um, some memories on, on good wines during the wine show mm-hmm. and, and the recordings of that. In all of your years in the wine industry, do you have wine that really lives long in your memory, either for good or for bad reasons? Shall I give you a good one or a bad one? Yes. I'll give you a really good one. Um, you know, one of the questions you get asked a lot is, sometimes people say, well, you know, are really expensive wines really good? And I'm afraid the horrendous truth is, yes, they are really, really amazing. Um, they're not necessarily amazing when you always get to try them because they'll tend to have a peak. But uh, the Mendel Romani Conti Latache 1978 was pretty amazing, you know, and it was absolutely the peak of its powers and it was glorious. And I mean, I've had Romani Conti, Romani Conti 92, which was certainly up there. And the difference between them is about £15,000. But actually, the 78 probably just nudged it. It was, even though it was about £15,000 cheaper, it was probably actually... Sort of, you so know, when did you better. taste that? Was it a special <laughs> occasion? Or? You know what? It was on a wet Wednesday in February. Uh, and I can tell you exactly why, because it was uh, Valentine's Day. And I just suddenly thought, we better drink this, because whenever I'm out... And I had lo- I've got loads of children. And so it was like, we're never going to go and have some fancy dinner, but I'm just going to open it now. So we just opened it... Um, and I remember afterwards thinking I could have bought a car if I'd sold it and I'd just sort of drunk it it doesn't need to be the danger we do is we sometimes leave things for an awfully long time I remember when I had 92 Romani Conti that was a quite a smart dinner I think we worked out we got through about £28,000 worth of wine between the seven of us and um, we didn't pay for it we didn't pay, like, pay a cheque at the end it was a sort of collector's a few bits and pieces but um, so yeah, and those that live on in your sort of memory, there are other wines that are utterly fabulous and I remember in the nice way, and certainly within the show, we've had some pretty epic moments with, you know, um, 2010 Ricazzitelli orange wine from Pheasant's Tears um, is not that expensive, it's pretty rare now because I think we have one of the last bottles, but that was really good, and that was probably a 20 quid bottle of wine when it was out. Um, the worst... I mean, it was, I had something just recently which was utterly terrible. Stalin loved sweet reds from Georgia, and they still make quite a lot of sweet reds in Georgia. And I bought this bottle of wine in an earthenware bottle with Stalin's face on the front. I was like, can anybody imagine going to Germany and they still sell Hitler wine? I mean, the sort of the political uncorrectness of buying this thing. Anyway, I decided to buy it and I bought it, and you know, I'm almost pleased it was utterly disgusting it was totally revolting uh, to go and have so you know those are uh, that was really foul it was sort of almost satisfying that it was utterly revolting because Stalin was himself we keep bumping into Stalin making the show 
Um, in series one, I got shouted at by some Russian nationalists um, at a parade in front of a statue of Stalin. And I was astonished they were teaching these little eight-year-old children to go and sort of salute Stalin. I was like, you must be joking. And we did this piece and this guy came in and he, he shouted. He said, you can see it online, actually. It's a little YouTube clip. And he starts ranting at me for going and disrupting this parade that they've got. And so we keep bumping into him. Um, but you know that's one. Of the, I mean, one of the nice things about wine is it has these fascinating stories that run in and out. And um, I mean, it, it may have passed when people listen to this. Just just this week, um, is the war crimes trial of Ratko Mladic in uh, from in Bosnia, Republic of Srpska. Um, when we were making series two, we bizarrely came across Ratko Mladic. Not personally, but there were these fridge magnets in a monastery making wine. And you suddenly thought, crikey, you know, here's this indicted war criminal, and they're selling fridge magnets, apparently for Bosnian school kids. They love them. And you realise that much as wine, we often talk about it, it's very you know, upbeat history. We've come across Goering's wine collection, Ratko Mladic, fridge magnets, Stalin, these sort of figures who... Um, you know, wine often marks both the highs and the lows. And when I've, I've drunk 43, 1943 Chateau Lafitte twice, I had two bottles of it. Uh, the first time was quite nice, the second time it was really, really bad. Um, it was the best of the wartime vintages. People talk about 45, which was very good, but that was post war, sort of, um, because the war finished really when they were making it. But 43 was fundamentally made by slave labour. And it was made to go back to the Reich. And the whole idea was that the Russians, the Germans would drink it back in, in Germany. And when you're drinking that, even if it's not very nice, there's this sort of utterly weird feeling that you're sort of tasting, you know, through the ages, tasting history. I mean, actually, trying Napoleon's wine. I mean, they drinking the wine that Napoleon himself drank. And, um, you know, that's... From, I was listening to something the other day. Hugh Johnson drank a wine that I think was made when Henry VIII was on the throne. It was a 16th century wine. And there was still some of it floating around. And he, it's the oldest wine, drinkable wine anybody's had. And he said, you know, you realise that you're drinking Tudor-era wine. It sort of blows you away. Um, and, but wine, even in modern history, you know, you can go and do that. Yeah, so it's really all good and bad stories, but definitely lots of stories from being in the industry for so long. Yeah, and a large part that I'm trying to sort of give across to people, people sort of say, oh, what you do is very different. Yeah, it is. Most of us don't get to... I, I had jet lag for seven months because um, I was never at home long enough to get over the jet lag from the last place that I'd been. So I think I spent most of August just feeling utterly miserable seven months of jet lag. Um, so we're very lucky we travel around the world and we do this. What we do is exactly the same as what really good people do in restaurants, which is to engage with people around wine, not by... You know, people say, well, we need more education. Most people don't need more education. They don't have the time. It's about... A bit of a performance and a bit of a display and bringing it to life with a story that you genuinely find interesting and that relates to people's everyday lives. I tell you a really lovely one and I remember telling somebody this and then two weeks later I heard them saying it to somebody. I was having dinner in the restaurant and I heard them talking. Merlot is the French word for blackbird because blackbirds know that Merlot ripens earliest and it's sweet and soft. And I told this guy that and he suddenly said, oh it kind of makes sense why you know, young drinking, soft, fruity, um, Bordeaux mostly has Merlot in it because it's a softer, fruitier, early drinking wine. It doesn't live for as long on the whole. So, but also you have this mental picture of a blackbird pecking at the grapes. And people like that. So you gradually pick up a bit of a, a sort of lexicon, a bit of sort of um, 
you know, I probably have several hundred of these, probably thousands of them, but actually if you're working in a restaurant, you could do 10. And most people haven't heard it before, you know. Helixophilia is what you call somebody who collects corkscrews. A bizarre one. That's a bit of fun, isn't it? Collecting right. corkscrews. I'm a heli- you hear more often, but corkscrews. Corkscrews. Helixophiles collect corkscrews. It is, a, it is a larger hobby than you might imagine. Loads of people are helixophiles. Oh. It's big stuff, yeah. Um, now, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've had an absolutely incredible year so far, uh, awards and, and, and whatnot. Oh, do you wonder, though, with, with such a year gone, almost gone past, what's next for you? Um, I'm, well, I'm bracing myself to not win very many awards next year because I had to do very well. I've been nominated for four and I've won two. So, yeah, sort of um, 50% hit rate. I had been nominated for three and I've won two, and so I was almost disappointed to get nominated for the fourth because then it sort of dropped my rates. Um, they are all very nice. The nicest part is, you know, I've done this for a long time. This is my th- I've just marked 30 years in the wine business. So I started when I was 18, I'm 48 now. Uh, I'm not, I don't look 48, obviously. And, you know, I started like loads of other people. I was a sommelier in a restaurant called the Angel Inn at Hetton, which is in Yorkshire. It's still there, actually. It's got kind of different from when I was there. Um, and I was a young, I started as a young sommelier. I was already kind of into wine, so I already knew quite a lot about wine when I began. And I had a very good mentor. It's always good to have really good mentors, and I've had two or three sort of through my career. Um, and mixed them up, I would say half, most, almost all my communications mentors have been women. Almost, almost all my wine mentors have been men. So it's, I've been very lucky to have a really nice sort of mix. Um, I mean, all my communications bosses have been women. The boss of the wine show, the boss of my newspaper column, the boss of my first radio show, all women all the way through. And they kept me in check uh, very much all the way through. So he's nice to have sort of mentors. Um, and but you can't expect prizes straight away. And I remember you had to be sort of 29 being miffed that I didn't win awards. And then people go, oh, that's amazing, you win them all in one year. And you say, well, yeah, I've won them all in 30 years. It just happens that they've all sort of turned up. Uh, but the nice ones, I, I was shortlisted for a thing called the Outstanding Alumnus Award with the Wine and Spirits Education Trust. And that means quite a lot uh, because it was the first time they did it. But also the WSET kick-started my career. So it was sort of the diploma graduate of the year or whatever. Um, I mean, I did it a long time ago, 20-odd years ago, and it's nice to still have that. Um, yeah, the International Wine and Spirits Competitions Wine Communicator Award, um, which is very nice because I think wine communication is becoming increasingly important. Um, I'll tell you why. When wine prices go up, wine producers are in no... And indeed, nobody in the wine supply business is in a position... If the wine price goes up by 4%, nobody can take that out. You know, Nobody's got so much money they can say, oh, yeah, I'll make it 4% less expensive. And in fact, nobody can make wine 4% better because most wine producers are making wine pretty much at the limit of how good they can make it. We've seen an extraordinary change in my lifetime in the quality of wine, but we are now, not the limits, but the marginal gains. The only thing that can make people want to pay more for wine is good ideas and words. And if you don't believe me, do a blind tasting where you put champagne in with a load of much cheaper English and New World fizzes. And you'll realise that most people spend a lot of money on champagne because the idea of it and the words that surround it are better. It's more attractive. So wine communicators have a very powerful role, I think, to play in helping restaurants and hotels, indeed wine importers, wine makers, to clothe their wine 
in value-added words and ideas that sort of you know help them solve through. And it's not just about writing nice stuff; it's about saying why are you making this. Don't tell people you're making because your dad did it. Tell people you're making because you want to make their Friday nights better, and that tends to be more appealing for people. So yeah, there's uh, International Wine and Spirits Competition Wine Communicator Award and Personality of the Year for the International Wine Challenge, which came as an enormous surprise because I'd had a general anaesthetic that morning, and the hospital wouldn't let me out of the hospital when I said I had to go for a boozy dinner that night. My agent had to bust me out of hospital and dress me with bandages and also fairly I'm not going to tell you exactly where but I was fairly trussed up and she dressed me in a dinner jacket and dropped me off at, this, at the uh, Park Lane Hilton I sat there miserably through this dinner not drinking because I was high as a kite on painkillers and um, then at the very end when I was busting to go and get a cab and go home because I've been up since five that morning when I'm having a general um they said, oh, the winner is. And I had to go up and collect my award. It was utterly bizarre. Um, and then I was just shortlisted for a really lovely award, actually, a guy called uh, Julian Brind, who died some years ago. And there's a memorial trophy for outstanding achievement in the wine business. And I was shortlisted for that. And I couldn't have been happier to have not won it to the man who won it, actually. He was a great friend of mine, Nick. So it's quite nice when somebody who's really good is the person who beats you and I did meet the head of the judges uh, just today for lunch and he said well I couldn't give you two anyway so it would have meant I've got two on the same night so I'll just get the one so I don't know next year um, we will I mean we will make a third series we don't know when um, well, it's slightly different we have to raise the money ourselves we don't get commissioned so we um, we're much more like a small business really we, I talk to hoteliers and restaurant owners and they sort of, oh, it's lovely being commissioned by some big TV channel. You say, no, actually, I'm exactly like you. I can only, effectively, Series 3 is our third site, and I can only open that third site, or we can only open that third site when we've made enough money out of Series 1 and 2. So we are growing in exactly the same way as the restaurant business grows. Um, but we've got a couple of other ideas up our sleeves. Very good. It's exciting times ahead, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, and fortunately so. You know, wine's had a bit of a rough time. If no other reason I mean, there's no need to panic but you know we had hail this year and we've had a lot of rain so there's not an awful lot of wine floating around in the world which isn't a terrible thing because actually people I think quite rightly are drinking less but better um, I'm, I know I shouldn't necessarily say this but it's, there are goods and bads to the fact that people are drinking slightly less so long as people are drinking better that's actually quite good for us um, and you know I'm a kind of healthy guy I do drink less but better I'd rather see people really enjoying a fantastic no Slovenian ferment that's really great value than you know some cheap bucket shop slightly chemically Chardonnay that's been made goodness knows where on the other side of the world and kind of tastes a bit insipid I'd much rather people have something from a family winery that's still good value you know it's retails at let's say about eight nine quid it's in restaurant lists in the 20s you know something like that 20s or 30s and that's a real sweet spot and I'd rather see people really flourish there than just find that we're selling an awful lot of house wine that doesn't really do anybody any favours yeah fair enough well, I think that's a great um, place to, uh, to finish um, thank you so much no let's not finish let's carry on talking I sort of keep going <laughs> well we're going to have to go on and taste some wines now we're going to taste some wines I'm sorry if you're listening I'm sorry you can't come with us we are going to go and try some really lovely wine there's uh, some stuff that I'm particularly looking forward to from Conca de Barbera good well thank you so much it's a pleasure to listen to more podcasts visit the Matthew Clark website and don't forget to tune in next time when we'll be talking to Andrea Freebro 
Salamaster at Niederberg. <laughs>